Across the globe, 2,800 dedicated soldiers and civilians at 23 locations in 11 time zones stand ready. This is SMDC. Welcome back to the High Ground Studio at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama, home of U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan in Colorado Springs. For Episode 2, we're going to be talking SMDC news, your questions from the mailbag, some cool jobs, and finally, some upcoming events of interest. So stick around. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies? All right, here we are at episode two, which will first come to you in early December 2020. We're also working on some special edition podcasts for deep dives on subjects and people of interest within the command. So keep an eye out for those too. Thanks to First Sergeant Sagan for joining us from Colorado Springs. First Sergeant, where do we go from here? Well, Ron, for our first segment, we want to let folks know about some recent news stories featuring SMDC. We publish dozens of articles, photo sets, videos each month. Uh, these just happen to be some of our favorites. First up is a story you put together, Ron, on how an SMDC soldier received what is considered the rarest qualification device in the Army, the Army astronaut device. I don't think that's something you can just go grab at folding sales. No, probably not. Hard enough to find an SMDC patch sometimes. Anyway, on 10 November, U.S. Space Command commander and former SMDC commanding general, am I dad, James Dickinson presented the Army astronaut device to our own Lieutenant Colonel Ann McLean at the Johnson Space Center, Texas. Awarded by the Chief of Staff of the Army and presented by General Dickinson, Lieutenant Colonel McLean is currently the only active duty soldier who has been presented the device and can therefore wear that proudly on her Army service uniforms. Lieutenant Colonel McLean met the criteria for the device after 204 days in space aboard the International Space Station from December 2018 to July 2019. During her time aboard, she contributed to hundreds of experiments in biology, biotechnology, physical science, and earth science, not to mention two spacewalks. I can imagine filling out the DPS voucher for that 204-day TDY. Yeah, if she gets paid for mileage, she's going to be set for life. Anyway, next we are very proud to announce and congratulate SMDC's 100th Missile Defense Brigade on receiving the prestigious Omaha Trophy from U.S. Strategic Command. The Omaha Trophy was first awarded in 1971 by the U.S. Air Force Strategic Air Command. Back then, it was a single trophy, generally given to the best wing that year. But after the creation of U.S. Strategic Command in 1992, the trophy now has five categories. It's still mostly awarded to Navy and Air Force, nuclear submarines, bombers, ICBMs, strategic aircraft units. In fact, the 100th is the first Army and first National Guard unit to ever receive an Omaha Trophy. Ron, you used to be the 100th Brigade, didn't you? Yeah, but that was more than a hot minute ago. So let's go to Staff Sergeant Zach Sheely at the 100th Headquarters in Colorado Springs to shed some light on how this National Guard Missile Defense Brigade earned this distinguished STRATCOM award. Thank you for that introduction. 
speaking on behalf of the 100th Missile Defense Brigade and all of our soldiers, we were extremely honored by this unique award and opportunity to be the first Army unit and National Guard unit to win it. We were awarded the Omaha Trophy for Global Operations for 2019 from U.S. STRATCOM. That, of course, included our most recent flight test, FTG-11, the first successful salvo test of the GMD system in March 2019. Joining me is Lieutenant Colonel Tim Biart, our operations officer in charge and former crew director, and one of the active component soldiers that helps make us a multi-component organization. Colonel Biart, can you briefly describe your military background and your thoughts on the significance of the 100th Brigade winning the Omaha Trophy? Absolutely. So, uh, as you said, Sergeant Shirley, uh, my background's a little different. I spent my first eight years in the military actually operating ICBMs in the Air Force before I transitioned to the Army as an air defender. Since joining, I've done several traditional air defense jobs until I joined the 100th Missile Defense Brigade, and now I'm one of about a dozen active duty personnel in the unit. And uh, as you said, prior to becoming the Brigade Operations OIC, I spent almost three years on GMD crew. I think the Brigade winning the Omaha Trophy is an extremely significant accomplishment, and that is because it's a new achievement for both the Brigade and the Army, and there's just not a lot of knowledge on how significant the win is within the formation. I was in the Air Force, I was stationed in the 91st Space Wing at Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. There were two big challenges that really set your wing apart from every other ICBM unit. One was Guardian Challenge, which was a skills challenge between the wings, including their missile crews, their maintainers, and their security forces. The other was the Omaha Trophy, which was decided by a panel and takes into account the unit's mission accomplishments. When we won the Omaha Trophy, it was a real big deal, and it was celebrated as such. It was such a big deal that it made it into the documentation for our performance reports and even supported individual awards. Now, the 100th Missile Defense Brigade is the first Army unit to win the trophy. We beat out the 14th Air Force and other U.S. Cybercom units in that global operations category. A brigade of 300 soldiers beat a two-star headquarters. I know that all the units participating did amazing things in defense of our country, and they did them very well. But being identified by an impartial selection board as being the best is something that our soldiers really should take a lot of pride in. We accomplished a lot of great things from that successful flight test, demonstrating our ability to engage a threat with a salvo, which in this case was two interceptors, to supporting a multitude of joint exercises while maintaining the real-world mission and readiness at all times. I know the Army is now recognizing how great it is for the 100th to be recognized by winning the Omaha Trophy, and I hope the soldiers truly grasp how important their role was, regardless of position, in earning it. I know I'm proud once again to be in a unit with the dedication and expertise of the 100th that continues to accomplish a mission with excellence as the standard. That's excellent, Colonel Biart. Thank you for sharing my perspective and your, and your experience, and we appreciate your time. Absolutely my pleasure. You guys have a great day. A big thanks to Staff Sergeant Sheely for putting that together for us. If you'd like to check out these and other stories, photos, and videos that we produce, probably the best one-stop shop for that is our public webpage at www.smdc.army.mil. They'll either be posted there directly, or you can find links to our social media accounts where you can find all of our content. Okay, so that's actually the bugle call for mail call. For us, that means an opportunity to answer listeners' questions here on the podcast. What have we got in the mailbag this time, Ron? 
I'm going to guess this is going to be something that you hear quite a bit out there in Colorado Springs as well for Sargent. I run a small business and would like to know if SMDC is interested in buying my product or, in this case, service. Yeah, people call us on the phone all the time trying to sell stuff, particularly after symposiums and conferences we attend. Right. It's also one we get a lot of from retired service members who now have small businesses and would like to do business with SMDC or another Army organization. Rather than us tell you about how we do it, we asked Melissa if she would call Mary Birdsong, who runs our small business office, to get that answer. Hey, this is Melissa from SMDC Public Affairs, and I have Mary Birdsong here with me, and she is going to give us all the details to answer the question about how to do business with the command. Hey, Mary. Good morning, Melissa. So tell us how a small business can get started with their relationship with SMDC or the federal government. Where do they start? Well, just as a small business plans and prepares its own commodity or service so it can be competent and competitive in their field, small businesses need to understand how to pursue and gain opportunities in the federal sector. This is called business development. Our office meets with small business in many, many different forums, either face-to-face, by telecon. Uh, We are also present at various workshops, seminars, and we meet folks through email. We give pointers on getting started, but a very good resource that we do share with our small businesses to getting started is to visit their local Small Business Development Center Procurement Technical Assistance Center, or commonly called the PTACs. Most of the PTACs are located at universities, and we here have a very good PTAC at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Another recommendation I have is to get an understanding in general on regulations, laws, statutes of how to do government contracting. The Small Business Administration, or SBA, has a lot of information on their website. They also do webinars, and most of this information is free. Another good starting point may be to be established as a partner or to partner with other small businesses. Look for subcontracting opportunities with either, say, other small or large businesses who may, in fact, have a prime contract, meaning a government contract. So how does the Army actually define a small business? First, a firm must be a U.S. business. Second, they must be established for profit. Many folks believe, say, a small business is only five or ten people, but really, depending on your industry, a small business could be defined as a a business with as many as 250 employees or even 1,500 employees. They're privately owned corporations, partnerships, or sole proprietorships that have less revenue than a large business. And a small business answer varies by industry, but a small business overall is one that has fewer than 1,500 employees and a maximum of $38.5 million in average annual receipts. So what are the types of products or services that SMDC is looking for maybe now and also in the future? Can you give some examples? SMDC is a little unique. We are a research and development engineering services centric and mainly purchase professional services that support these efforts. The majority of our obligated efforts for our SMDC support building future space and missile defense forces for tomorrow by supporting research, tech testing, and integrating space, missile defense, cyber, and directed energy, hypersonic, and those related technologies for the future. Is there a typical time frame for the process for how long it takes from initial contact to the time a business gets a contract? And does the time of the year, the calendar year, the fiscal year factor into that? 
My answer is it, it depends. There's not necessarily a typical time frame in government contracting. We have desired standards that vary with uh, estimated dollars, complexity, and of course, available funding. I'll refer to our forecast to industry where we include a disclaimer that this is indeed a forecast subject to change. The time of the calendar fiscal year does tend to influence some acquisitions, but overall I would say it depends as there is no necessary there's not necessarily a typical time frame in government contracts. So how can small businesses compete with the larger, more established businesses? And are there special incentives or programs that can help them do that? The answer is yes. Small businesses can and do compete with large businesses. It is not always easy, and there are definitely some real challenges, but small businesses can compete. Fortunately, there are programs in place to ensure small business get the maximum practical opportunity to participate in government procurement. There are, in fact, certain regulations that allow for and sometimes require that an opportunity be set aside. And there's different types of set-asides. For example, there's small business set-asides, women-owned small business set-asides, service-disabled vets, and hub-zone set-asides. SMDC has the support of senior leadership and does an excellent job of contracting with small businesses. Thank you so much for your time today and answering all the questions for our listeners. Thank you again. It was my pleasure. Thanks again to Mary for explaining that for us. If you would like to learn more about our Office of Small Business Programs here at SMDC, head on over to our webpage and click on the Resources tab. It'll be listed there. So our second question is another one that we guessed a lot due to COVID restrictions. Soldiers and our civilians want to know if we, public affairs, here in Huntsville or in Colorado Springs can live stream their promotion, retirement, or other ceremonial events on the SMDC or one of the brigades Facebook pages. We get this question a lot. Ron, what can we advise them? Uh, I feel for them on this one. Understanding the seriousness of COVID and the precautions we need to take, it's tough that soldiers and other team members can't bring all their friends and family together to be with them for these special occasions in their careers. It must be especially hard for operational forces at small units scattered across the globe that don't have dedicated PAOs to do this for them in the first place. Specific to the question at hand, though, Ceremonies such as change of command, change of responsibility, deployment, or unit award ceremonies, that works well for our broader audience on command pages. What we found to be the most effective for soldiers and others, though, those more personal events, is if they actually stream them for the, from their own personal accounts. So what can we offer them? I mean, what can we do? Are they just out of luck, or should they use Skype or Facebook Live it themselves from a promotion in their living room? As entertaining as that might be, no. What we can offer, though, is a bit of a DIY solution, setting up an event in their own private Facebook group using their personal profile. Yes, I remember that. Um, I remember you tested with one of your old 100 Brigade friends when they retired, and they were really happy with the result. But what if they would like someone to watch, but they don't necessarily want to invite them to be their friends on Facebook? That's actually the beauty of what we discovered. You can set up a private group that you can invite anyone who has a Facebook account into, but you are inviting them to that group specifically, not to your personal profile. So you don't have to be friends, I'm using air quotes here, with them. Well, how do you keep just anyone from joining your private group? I wouldn't want 
anybody that I didn't know to just be searching around and find it and then start commenting about useless stuff during my live ceremony. Uh, but you see, there are settings you as the admin of your private group can use to filter who gets in. There are a number of different options, but basically we recommend settings that will allow you to invite people to the page via a shareable link. That link doesn't let them in the group. That link takes them to an invite page where they apply to get in. You and your other admins that you can assign, such as your spouse or close friend, are ultimately the gatekeepers to accept or deny access. Oh, okay. Got it. So that's setting up a private group. But how do you actually do the live stream of the event? What if that person doesn't have any experience or equipment to do that? Well, actually, most of us have our live stream camera right in our pockets. It's our cell phones. That, a borrowed tripod, and a $10 cell phone clamp you could buy at most retail stores, the PX, or online, and you have all the setup you need. Okay. As PAOs, we're pretty used to doing live streams, and a lot of us are pretty tech-savvy and could probably figure it out. But for many, having a step-by-step -step procedure on how to set up our private group and how to actually live stream it on the big day. Oh, hang on for a second. I, I know where you're going with this. We have them covered. Now, we can't send this out to everyone, but for SMDC soldiers and personnel, if you email us here at SMDC Public Affairs, we have a couple of PDF documents we can send you that explains everything with pictures, screenshots, best practices, and easy-to-follow instructions. That's awesome. All right. So, you know, back in the day, we would say send a self-addressed stamped envelope to the station. But now with technology, we can get things much easier. So this is probably a good time to remind everyone how to ask for that and also how you can submit your questions to the mailbag for future episodes. And that's too easy. Just go to our public webpage, which is smdc.army.mil, and click on the Contact Us tab. You'll find our group email address there. Just tell us in the subject line what you're writing us about. And hopefully you'll be on an episode in the future. Moving on to the highlight of our podcast, our cool job segment. And we have an awesome cool job that you're only going to find here at SMDC. And we're going to be talking to two of the three soldiers that currently hold that job. I love cool jobs. Uh, although there are a number of FA-40s, which are space operations officers in the Army, what these two do truly stands out from the others. A couple of weeks ago, Ron got to talk to Lieutenant Colonel Adam Springer, and John Bosch, stationed at the U.S. Army NASA Detachment at the Johnson Space Center. That's right, Houston, the Johnson Space Center, Texas, about what it's like working with NASA team members and our Army astronauts. Ron, let's play that for him. Hello, I'm Ronald Bailey, a public affairs specialist with U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama. Today, I am excited to be talking with Lieutenant Colonels Adam Springer and John Boss, Functional Area 40 Space Operations Officers assigned to the U.S. Army NASA Detachment at the Johnson Space Center, Texas. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me to talk about your cool jobs. Hey, Beto. Uh, this is Colonel Springer, and I really want to thank you for having us. Uh, it's really an honor to get a chance to talk and share our experiences with NASA. It really is a chance of a lifetime. Thanks, Beetle. Uh, this is definitely a privilege to be here. It's always a unique opportunity to, uh, to talk about our cool jobs here, and it is a cool job. So to start off with, what are your primary duties and responsibilities there? I, my primary duty has been being a Capcom, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, but being the Capsule Communicator, I've been responsible for the day-to-day -day conduct of the console. 
currently, I've shifted my responsibilities where I'm now working as a chief engineer for the exploration branch with our goal of putting boots on the moon in 2024. And uh, I'm going through the certification process actually right now to become a CAPCOM and also getting involved in the exploration effort to put boots on the moon in 2024. And I'd just like to say this is a, it's a pretty unique time in space in general, both DOD and on the civil commercial side. And we're in a really interesting time where we're getting exposed to both the, the DOD side and the, the commercial and civil space side being here at NASA. Well, thank you for that. Uh, what is it like working directly with NASA and other space industry personnel there? Is it a different culture from the Army, different language, different structure? What's it like working with that group? So, so NASA in general is, is a government entity, much like the Department of Defense, has a heavy focus on engineering science rather than probably operations that you would see in the Department of Defense. And therefore, the, the culture of NASA is, is heavily focused on on science, on engineering. But I would add that here at Johnson Space Center, we're kind of at the intersection of both engineering, science, but people too. So the astronauts live here. Uh, and so we have a, a little bit more heavy focus on operations, much like the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command has its different uh, its centers of excellence as well as the, the operational uh, units uh, assigned to it. For me, working at NASA, the biggest thing that, that shocked me was the language. The syntax is the same in that we are, it's a language of acronyms. In the Army, we're, we're famous for our acronyms. We use our TLAs, the three-letter acronyms, to uh, describe just about everything. And NASA's no different that way, but it's a whole new set. So it probably took me six months uh, being here before I actually could understand what any meeting was about. And so that was the biggest shock to me coming to work, coming to work with NASA. Working with the people working in the organization is no different than anywhere else of any working with any other set of professionals. The engineers and the people all have their own unique leadership styles, just as any commander does and any organ other organization does. Uh, and I found it to be a contagious positive work atmosphere at NASA, and it's really been a great experience all around. All right, so both of you mentioned CAPCOM, Capsule Communicator, I believe is the correct terminology. How long does that take to become certified? What's the training like, and how are you evaluated or recertified to do that task? So training to be a Capsule Communicator uh, is a lengthy process. Our training uh, it's comprised of 127 plus or minus classes uh, on communication, systems, engineering, leadership, and everything under the sun. It mirrors closely to what the astronauts go through when they're learning, when they first come on board and they're learning the space station. We're evaluated on our performance, uh, our console performance by the flight director. The flight director is overall responsible for the safety, conduct, and mission performance of, of the space station. The CAPCOM is really looking, what we're looking for is to be value added to that flight control team. We want to be on, we're on the right side of the, right hand side of that flight director, and we want to be part of that integrated team. And our training is all focused on making sure we can take the technical data from the flight control team 
and communicate it in a way that the astronauts on board the space station understand what actions they need to take and when they need to take them. Conversely, that training also takes the crew's communication, and we need to be able to communicate that back to that flight control team in a way that they understand what it is the crew is asking for. And so those 127 classes are really designed with that mindset that we need to be able to translate up and down, left and right, and have a deep understanding of all our systems on the space station. In terms of certification, it's just kind of like taking a check ride that we would do in the Army when we're, you know, perhaps we're taking a check ride in a helicopter or that kind of thing, where after you take all these classes and get that working knowledge, it puts you into a, a simulation. And throughout Chapman Space Center, there are several different mission controls that are set up specifically for training. So you are put into a, a simulation with a ton of other flight controllers and a flight director, and they present problems to you. They present a day in the life of the astronauts, and your job is to take all that is happening, all the failures, uh, all the different malfunctions of the space station, the procedures that the crew may need to, to work off of and then relay that up to the crew, uh, who is also simulated. Uh, and they, NASA does a great job of putting these together, of making it rigorous, hard training, so that when you come to the real flight control room, after you get certified, uh, you're ready to talk to the crew and do so in a efficient and intelligent manner. Okay, gentlemen, I have to ask, what is it like working with our Army astronauts? Colonel Morgan, Lieutenant Colonels McLean and Rubio, not many folks can say they frequently interact with astronauts as a part of their daily duties. What are they like as supervisors and peers? I've had the privilege to work with both Ann and Colonel Morgan on and off the planet. Uh, I was on console when they were flying on the space station, and so I have a unique perspective of them watching and Andrew perform in space was a it was an incredible experience because you really get to see why they were selected as astronauts. You see that they're not just dedicated. You don't you see that they have an incredible work ethic. Uh, you know they're incredibly personable people, but they also have a certain almost intangible quality to them, uh, and you really get to see that when they're on orbit. Their demeanor, their professionalism always comes across, and, and they're just great human beings. First of all, I, I'd like to say that there, there is an awe factor at first. I, I'm a space enthusiast. I'm a functional area 40. Astronauts are kind of celebrities in my book. Our offices are on the astronaut floor, so just about every office around us, you know, across from us, house astronauts, whether they're Army astronauts or not. And so you see some famous, famous people walking around, and so, yes, there's definitely this kind of awe factor when you walk into the building. But then you kind of go through a transition period where, no pun intended, you realize that they're all they're all down-to-earth people. And they're all very personable. And I think the common denominator that I've seen working with astronauts is they're all very easy to work with. They're very personable. And and they generally care in, about their job and, and about you as, as, as people. And Colonel Morgan, I just let you know, behind the camera, He's, he's what you would expect of any high-performing, highly dedicated colonel in the United States Army. He's exactly what you expect when you you know you work with a G3 or a brigade commander. He, he has the same demeanor, same language. He treats soldiers the, the same way as you would expect. Okay, so switching gears just a little bit. So if someone is a brand new second lieutenant just getting their commission. 
they want to work as an FA-40 at the NASA detachment later in their career. How do they set themselves up for at least the chance of getting to do that? Hey, another, another great question, Beetle. Yeah. First of all, this, this is a competitive process. Secondly, it is also nominative. And so as such, other than submitting your, your ORB and resume through the AIM process, there's also an interview process that follows on if you make it to the initial calling. And that, that interview is focused on problem-solving techniques and leadership experiences, as you would expect of this type of job. And in that selection process, though, they are looking for certain criteria. And, and the first is they're, they're looking for someone with a STEM background. Uh, they're also looking for some, some of those intangibles as well. Are you able to work with people outside the military? Do you have any project management skills? Are you a self-starter? You know, do you perform or you take initiative? Do you seek ways to get involved without having me told to do so, uh, without being obstructive of the current process going on? So I love this question because it's one I've had to answer before. When I was teaching in a math department back at West Point, I got asked this question all the time of, how do we become you? Whether it's be an academy professor, an Apache pilot, or once I heard I was coming down to NASA. So the answer, believe it or not, that I gave each and every one of them is fairly simple. Do good and follow your passion. Whatever it is, be a top performer. The commonality between all the astronauts and any top performer you'll find is that that's what their field they care about. Uh, and they and they show that over and over and over. You'll see that Colonel McLean and Colonel Morgan, they are deeply passionate about human spaceflight, about our opportunities to explore, and about their STEM backgrounds. That's what they'll tell you. How I got here? Well, I'm passionate about exploration as well. I'm passionate about education, and and that's what that's what got me here. If you look at my history, there's nothing I've done that has been specifically targeted at NASA. It's that I was good as a platoon leader. I did well as a company commander. I did well as a battalion executive officer. I did well as a brigade aviation officer. All those assignments just meant I did well and I led, I led from the front and I was passionate about taking care of my, my soldiers and everything else. That's what I could tell a young lieutenant that's how you get here. How cool is that job? It's pretty awesome for sure. But I'm also wondering how many people are looking those two up on global email right now, trying to figure out if there's a vacancy coming up. Well, I think it's a really cool job. If they would like to learn more about SMDC's NASA detachment, they should head on over to our webpage to learn more about them and our other units across the globe. Well, for certain, it's about time to put a bow on this December 2020 holiday edition of The High Ground. What do we have coming up for our listeners between now and the first of the year, though? First off, we have the first Space Battalion change of command scheduled for December 4th. Given the current COVID environment, that will likely be live streamed or limited to social media, but it's still a big deal for the command. And you'll be able to watch that live on the First Space Brigade Facebook page. Locally here to Redstone, SMDC Commanding General Lieutenant General Daniel Carbler will be attending the commissioning ceremony for ROTC cadets at the University of Alabama, Huntsville. 
I think our teammate Jason Cutshaw will be covering that. Yep, that's right. So I'm sure that means at least some photos and perhaps a few quotes from that event. General Carbler is also expected to talk with officers going through the Warrant Officer Basic Course, Basic Officers Leader Course, and Captain's Career Course at the Air Defense Artillery Schoolhouse at Fort Sill, Oklahoma on 3 December. And for those of you listening who have younger children, I spoke to my friends at NORAD last week and can confirm that despite the ongoing COVID restrictions, they will be tracking Santa again this year, making it the 65th anniversary of NORAD providing children around the world Santa's location on Christmas Eve. Accurate Santa tracking can be observed at their website, www.noradsanta.org. That's it for this month's episode. First Sergeant, thanks again for joining me from out there in Colorado Springs. Hey, my pleasure, Ron. I'd invite everyone to tell your friends and coworkers about the podcast. And check our webpages at smdc.army.mil for more great stuff. From the High Ground Studio at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama, I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. Thanks for listening. This is SMDC.